Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good start to your um, week. Hard to believe this is the last full week in August. You know, it seems like it had been a good while since I was on the air last, oh, probably about a good three days uh, previously, but you know, I'm glad to be back on the air because I'm sure many of you all are itching to know more information about the book we are uh, into now, uh, The War of 1812 in Wisconsin, The Battle for Prairie du Chien by Mary Elise Antoine. So um, we're going to discuss in, um, in this um, segment, or rather my uh, podcast segment with you all, we're going to learn um, about two villages. You know, we talked about how uh, three villages were talked about, Michilimackinac, Labaye, and what would eventually be Prairie du Chin. Well, we are going to um, learn a variety of things in this podcast episode um, tonight. Now, of course, for some of you out there, you all could be, um, in, where you all live could be daytime, but I know where I'm podcasting and where I reside, it's nighttime, but I'm still having, I still have to remind myself that for those of you in other parts of the world, it is already Tuesday. But there's nothing wrong with that. Regardless of wherever you all live in the world and you are uh, willing to listen to what I have to uh, share history-wise, that's all that matters. Matter of fact, I just uh, found out this morning that, um, not to get off track, but I saw this morning that I'm now in the Netherlands. So th- so for those of you who are who live in the Netherlands, thank you for uh, listening and continue to get the word out to other people in your country whom would like to um, learn as much about history as there is possible that he or she or family members may not be familiar with. So we are going to be discussing in uh, this podcast episode um, the following. We're going to learn about Labaye and about Prairie du Chen. But, we, but before we can really learn about Labaye and Prairie du Chen, wouldn't it be fair to say that we've got to uh, learn a little bit more about European exploration? After all, um, by the mid-15th century, and especially more so in the 16th and 17th centuries, Europeans are exploring left and right. Of course, when I think of the first European explorers, I think of Christopher Columbus coming to America in 1492. The three ships that came over, the Maria, the Pinta, the Santa Maria. While his uh, voyage to America in 1492 was um, a significant uh, landmark or significant um, hallmark piece of history, uh, something that we do forget, and more often than not that the textbooks forget to tell us, is that that voyage also marked the first interaction between the natives and the Europeans and while yes some of those interactions could have been peaceful they could have resulted in the exchange of gifts learning about one another's cultures what the Europeans didn't realize was that they were bringing over diseases to the new world you know yes they may have uh, developed immunity to such diseases as um, smallpox um, especially smallpox, for example, but what they didn't realize was that the natives who had lived in America, North, Central, South America, they had been living there for years, but yet they had no clue about the diseases that were being brought over from Europe onto their lands. And what do you know? Populations of Indians are decimated left and right, not by warfare, but by disease. But more often than not, sometimes uh, the textbooks have um, wanted to tell us that it's been mostly warfare, and yet they will probably mention disease, but what they fail to realize is that it's the other way around, and that more Indians, regardless of whether they lived in North, Central, or South America, were sadly the victims of disease more so than uh, by means of uh, traditional warfare. So our first lead-off bonus question uh, for this podcast segment is the following. Which two European nations had gone about successfully establishing settlements in North America by the early 17th century? Well, I'll give you a couple of choices. 
Is, is it choice number one being um, Italy and Greece? Is it choice B, England and Spain? Or is it choice C, Spain and Portugal? Or is it choice D, Norway and Sweden? The answer is choice B, England and Spain. Of course, when I think of Spain, I think of Spain establishing settlements in the southern part of North America, most notably around uh, Florida. Uh, the Spanish have tried to, um, well, the Spanish did try to establish settlements in Virginia, but were um, driven out by the Indians. But usually in the, when I think of Spanish settlements in the United States, I think of um, in Florida, but I also think of settlements in the present-day southwest uh, part of the United States, most notably in uh, Colorado uh, with Hernando Cortez, uh, New Mexico, um, what we now know as Arizona. And of course, when I think of uh, England, I think of the English coming to a Jam what we now know as present-day Jamestown, Virginia in uh, 1607. Here's the second part of our uh, bonus question segment. What European nation established settlements that were further inland being away from the Atlantic coast? All right, what nation, what European nation do you all think established settlements that were further inland uh, being away from the Atlantic coast, a.k.a. the Atlantic Ocean? Was it France? Was it Germany? Was it uh, Belgium? Or was it Switzerland? The answer is choice A, France. While the French presence in North America wasn't the same like it was in England and Spain, their explorations, or rather their, uh, their adventures, were important. How so? Because the, the French explorations eventually were... The French explorations were concentrated upon establishing settlements, not just establishing settlements alone, but settlements that included trade routes, as well as building Indian relations within the New World's midsection, or what we call the Northwest Territory, or the Upper Mississippi River. So here the British, or rather the English, wanted to establish settlements, and, of course, the English, when they did first arrive to Jamestown in 1607, of course, Jamestown is named after King James uh, I, but they were also convinced that maybe they could find a trade route to the Pacific, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Well, I think it's fair to say that the fall line that separates um, the eastern part of Virginia from the western part of the state was probably the, the roadblock that kept the Europeans from going further past, uh, especially the English, going past the fall line. So, unfortunately, they didn't find the trade route they were looking for to the Pacific Ocean or to the Northwest Orient, but they did um, establish um, settlements along, most notably Jamestown, um, along the uh, Tidewater, uh, or what we call the Chesapeake region of Virginia. So, the, the French are different in that they are establishing settlements further inland, that is, away from the heart of the Atlantic coast, but that's not to say that their trade routes will revolve around water, but of course we have to remember the water itself does not always have to be confined to the coast. You know, when I think of waters that are further inland, like in the Midwest, how about, or the Ohio Valley, how about the Great Lakes? Uh, how about other rivers, you know, like most notably when you have look at present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, not to get off track, but the Pittsburgh Steelers' former stadium was known as Three Rivers Stadium. Those, those three rivers made up the confluence, being the uh, Ohio, Allegheny, and Monongahela rivers. So even rivers themselves all um, play an important role um, in uh, shaping uh, the landscape of the geography of, of not just present day, but the, the geography in which uh, settlers inhabited not only, um, not just inhabited, but went about making um, settlements. Whom did French explorer Samuel de Champlain send in 1634 to explore the western Great Lakes? Most of us wouldn't know this person's name, 
But of course, when I think of French explorers, Samuel de Champlain is one of the first who's uh, who that comes to my list. If I had to pick a second person, it would be Jacques Cartier or Cartier. Some people might say Cartier, but others would probably say Cartier. But those are the two that come to my mind. But as for whom French explorer Samuel de Champlain sent in 1634 to explore the Western Great Lakes, that person was Jean Nicolette, whom would whom went about stepping ashore at what would become La Baie, a.k.a. present-day Green Bay, Wisconsin. And what was Nicolette's mission, folks? His mission involved having explorers and traders live amongst the various Indian tribes. Okay, it's one thing to want to establish a settlement, but if you don't get to know the Indian tribes right away, or go about just establishing any kind of uh, connection with them, is it fair to say that you would be met with hostilities short and long term? Absolutely. Well, I mean, the English tried to establish uh, relations, and for a period of time their relations worked, but over time, uh, with as Indian leader as leadership changed in the um, the pow for the uh, Powhatan in Virginia, that didn't necessarily mean that the transfer of power from the um, Indians' side was good in the sense of the Indians having the same um, respect for the Europeans. So for the French, they are going to have to. Um, really go above and beyond to prove to uh, these Indian tribes that, hey, we're not here to snooker you all out of your land, but we would like to, but we are very interested, well, I would say very interested, we are wanting to establish settlements in the New World, but at the same time, we're not interested in engaging in warfare with you all, we're not interested in cheating you all out of land, but we want to build relations with you all short and long term. The late 17th century saw a great expansion in the fur trade. As for French figure, another French figure by the name of Nicolas Perrault and his partner, whom got consent from an Indian tribe known as the Potawatomi, they went about visiting La Baie, which included exploring an area around the Fox River, to making contact with, under, with other Indian tribes like the Menominee. So we got to keep in mind, folks, if we are European explorers at this time, we just can't uh, go and visit places whenever we feel like visiting. If we don't get permission, or rather the consent from Indian tribes who are around what we now know as uh, La Baie, or what we would become present-day Green Bay, Wisconsin, if we don't get the consent of the Indian tribes, they're going to think that uh, the French are up to something that is suspicious, a red flag. Who knows? Maybe the if the, the French didn't get the consent, that maybe the French are trying to come up with a ploy that would um, that would lead to the um, taking over of uh, ancestral lands that had been in the Indians' hands for many of centuries before Europeans came um, came into their neck of the woods. Interesting about the Menominee, um, my um, older sister lives in Wisconsin, and she lives not far from Milwaukee, but there is a place not far from where they live called uh, Menominee Falls, and what do you know, that would be named after the uh, Indian tribe uh, known as the Menominee. So for every voyage westward, via water, by rivers and lakes, French explorers and their missionary counterparts Missionary counterparts, you know, we is French heavily Catholic or Protestant, folks? France is heavily Catholic. It still is today, just like Spain is. But the French, when these French explorers came to the uh, what we know as the New World, they brought along um, Jesuit missionaries. So the missionaries were just as vital with the exploration missions uh, in the same way that the explorers were too. So for every voyage westward via water by rivers and lakes, these French explorers and their missionary counterparts sought to do what? They sought to obtain the best strategic locations where a trade route could flourish not only 
with just one party being the French themselves, but they need to have a successful trade route, not just a successful trade route, but a successful trade system with the Indians living in these areas. So if you have good trade uh, alliances, you also might want to go about establishing a fortified, not just a fortified post, but multiple fortified posts. You know, if you don't have a fortified post, then how are you going to know where to um, dock for the season? How are you going to know where to set up a command center for where um, people, not just people of one race, but people of, uh, of not just of a European um of a European um, ethnicity, but Indians, not just one or two Indian tribes, but multiple Indian tribes come into the post, or to the posts rather, where the exchange of goods themselves can take place. So when I say fortified posts, folks, I'm not talking so much militaristic, but a trading uh, station for both um, parties to um, present goods to one another. What contributions did Nicholas Perot make around the time he returned to trading around the time he returned to trading within Green Bay come 1685 and afterwards? You know, 1685 that's close. It's not right at folks. It's about 78 years after the English had settled in Jamestown, Virginia. So we're looking on close to 80 years there. So, as for Nicholas Perot, Perot and his men navigated northward up the Mississippi River where they traded with the Dakota Indian Nation, and they went about building three trading posts along the Mississippi River. Uh, on the east side, there was one being a winter post, okay? You know, winter's a cold, it's a cold season, folks. I mean, isn't it fair to say that People coming and going need to have somewhere to dock for the winter? Sure. Another was called Fort Fort St. Antoine at Lake Pepin. And then there was Fort St. Nicholas on the prairie southern end. Southern end, folks. I would, um, we might want to pay attention to the southern end because to me that sounds like something that's got a lot of uh, sentimental value. The French saw La Baie and the Prairie as a vital trade as vital trade locations, and over time, settled in these uh, places. So, in other words, they just they didn't um, establish the settlements right away. But remember, finding a trade route just doesn't happen overnight. They've got to do a lot of surveying. They've got to know, hey, where are the best strategic locations? Not just from a north and south um, direction, but maybe east and west. What tribes are, are there more tribes south of us? Are there more north of us? But could there be more in the middle to where we can establish a trading post that's going to benefit tribes living north and south? So we've got to, for these, for the French, they have to do a lot of logistical planning here, folks. Logistics is nothing new except the technology behind logistics is what has probably changed dramatically over the last 400 years. But it is fair to say that even the Europeans coming to the New World with these explorations were doing a lot of logistical planning for their time. Labaye, a.k.a. Green Bay, became the entryway point to the Fox-Wisconsin River Waterway. The Fox-Wisconsin River would serve as an entrance to the Mississippi River. So let's just keep in mind, folks, yes, the Mississippi River is a long river, but as it flows north to south, because remember, folks, the Mississippi River starts in Minnesota, isn't it fair to say that there are plenty of other riverways, or, or rather I should say tributaries, that um, whose um, streams of water or bodies of water flow into the Mississippi as it's going north to south. Absolutely. What did French fur traders go about doing in order to maintain economic alliances with nearby Indian tribes? They used the military posts as official headquarters to conduct trade 
within the confines of the wilderness. So, you know, I know I may have said earlier that the trading posts maybe didn't have to necessarily be military, but at the same time, the trading posts actually could be militaristic. They could serve for military purposes. That's not bad. After all, somebody's got to be in charge of the post. There has to be some form of order, not just for um, the French, but for uh, even for Indian tribes. After all, neither party wants to be held responsible for breaking cardinal rules that could um, damage long-term um, trading um, alliances, or rather trading uh, partnerships. We have to remember, folks, um, this isn't suburbia. This isn't, um, you know, the, the prairies themselves are open wildernesses. I mean, who knows what direction um, Indian tribes could be coming from in order to trade, but at the same time, who the French, maybe the French aren't 100% sure yet um, which Indian tribes get along with one another and which Indian tribes have some hostilities towards one another. After all, um, you know, yes, it's probably fair to say that all of us have been told for years that Indians got along with each other all the time. Well, I would have to admit that there were Indian tribes, regardless of whether they were on the East Coast, the Southeast, um, Midwest, there were Indian tribes that were not on friendly terms with one another, and therefore learned that it was best to stay away from one another to prevent future warfare from, um, from those tribes. Green Bay, being the winter trading post for fur traders, rather I should say Green Bay was the winter trading post for fur traders coming as far away as Montreal, Quebec. How about that, folks? These fur traders from Montreal, Quebec traded with um, such tribes as the Ottawa and the Menominee. There is a place um, in Illinois, um, my wife and I have a, know a couple, um, we haven't seen them in quite some time, but very nice couple, and uh, she was originally from a place in Illinois called uh, Ottawa, uh, north central Illinois, just uh, north of Springfield, but uh, it's probably fair to say that the uh, Ottawa, uh, the name uh, Ottawa in Illinois would be named after this uh, Indian tribe. So we should keep in mind that sometimes places we travel to uh, in the United States are named after uh, Indian tribes whose presence um, was um, key to uh, what would what would eventually become the state that they um, inhabited um, prior to our European arrival. Uh, did the French... Um, fur traders have any outside competition by the start of 1750. Who do you think would have been their outside uh, competition? Would it have been uh, the Spanish or would it have been the, um, the English or rather the British? Oh, the answer is the British. Uh, come 1750, England started entering into French-controlled territory in the Ohio Valley where they went about engaging in the fur trade practice with Indian tribes who were already aligned with France. Is it fair to say that the British want a piece of the pie? Oh, absolutely. So if you want a piece of the pie, is it, does it mean that you are going to play necessarily nice? No. It's going to involve what I call testing of the waters. The British know that, yes, they have um, established settlements from as far north as New Hampshire to as far central or what we call middle colonies, um, like, you know, Pennsylvania, um, New Jersey, Delaware. And they've got colonies in the southern tier of colonial America or of the New World from Virginia down to the Carolinas and Georgia, which was founded 17 years earlier in 1733 by James Oglethorpe. So by the start of the uh, 1750s, I think the British are tempted to go even further westward. They know the French have a stake further westward, but hey, why not, why not see for themselves what they can do to entice some Indian tribes who may not have complete 100% loyalty to the French, but yet might be interested in having another ally on their side.
if things don't work out for the other party. So, yes, the British go about in, engaging in the fur trade practice with Indian tribes whom were already aligned with France. And by 1752, the French, um, French fur trader by the name of uh, Charles de Langlade led the Ottawa and Chippewa forces in driving out uh, British traders out of the Ohio Valley. However, it wasn't just the British traders that were forced out. I don't believe that this tribe was forced out, but they did receive a big setback as a result of partnering with the British, and that was uh, Indian nations of the uh, Miami Confederacy and areas that we now know around present-day uh, Dayton, Ohio. So we should keep in mind that even Indian tribes along the Ohio Valley weren't always 100% on the side of the French. Did French forces endure military defeats at Montreal, as well as abandoning their fort at La Baie come 1760? I know it seems a little crazy to think I to be asking this question, because all of a sudden now, the French seem to have had it very peacefully, very quiet, without any uh, other outside European competition coming in further west. But by 1760, folks, um, North America is in a state of frenzy. We're about three years away from, from, a, from a climactic war coming to an end, a.k.a. the French and Indian War. You know, about five years earlier, um, General Edward Braddock was, um, was uh, killed at the Monongahela. The British were decimated in a um, brutal guerrilla-style war attack by uh, French and Indian forces around, uh, yes, around Monongahela, but close by to what we now know as present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The areas would have also included uh, Fort Pitt and uh, Fort Necessity, or what we also know as Fort Duquesne, the wilderness. These are very, very uh, scary times not just for French and Indians, but for the British, too. After all, I think it's fair to say that the Indians had warned the British about how they needed to adapt to new styles of fighting. That is, those Indians who were inclined to side with the British. You know, Indians fight ir irregularly. They don't believe in going out in an, in an open battlefield like Europeans do. But the French were quick to adopt to this style of uh, warfare fighting. And does anybody know which um, British, well, he's not a British figure, but he was a man um, who, whom had ties to England. His family did. In 1755, uh, why would he have ever thought in a million years that, that one day separation from England would have ever happened? He's a Virginian. His name's George Washington. He saves the day for what was left of that army at uh, Monongahela, or uh, that had been under um, Edward Braddock's con uh, command, and Braddock shot and, and died, along with countless other men. Washington was the hero, and that he saved everyone else who had been left unscathed to where they made it back out of the wilderness alive. Had it not been for George Washington, many of those other men would have um, probably not left the uh, wilderness alive um, at, around that time. So the French and Indian War is uh, proving um, to be a very um, climactic war. It's almost like its own version of a world war, folks. So as for the French, they are, um, they're not in a good state. Their era of good feelings came to an end started coming to an end in the early 1750s when the British first started advancing uh, westward. So, yes, French forces did endure military defeats at Montreal. And, hey, who now has possession of Montreal? England. And as for abandoning their fort at La Baie come 1760, who, retain, who will get possession of that? England. And, and... Come October of 1760, 
Britain will receive a new king. King George II dies earlier in 1760. His grandson takes, will take the throne, a.k.a. King George III, the House of Hanover. The final outcome to the French and Indian War saw France lose all of its territorial possessions from Quebec, Canada, the upper Mississippi River, and as far south as present-day Louisiana. It's a tough time to be um, on the French side, folks. You have, are being forced to swallow a lot of pills. You know, as I said from the introduction, it's one thing to have territory. It's another thing to, be, to lose it when you go to war. Whereas France had successfully established alliances militarily and economically with Indian tribes, the British, under General Geoffrey Amherst, treated them as inferior people. Inferior, folks. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? A bad thing. British General Geoffrey Amherst is treating these Indian, these Indian peoples as if they are second-class people. He doesn't seem to value their status, not just status in general, but he doesn't seem to value their status when it comes to the fur trade. And he also doesn't find the uh, customary tradition of uh, gift giving as part of the uh, trade ritual practice as something that is uh, worthy or relevant. Well, if British General Jeffrey Amherst doesn't find any of this stuff important, then why is he allowed to even be uh, command in command? I wish I had the answer for that one, but unfortunately I don't. Uh, but what I do know is that uh, there is a county in Virginia, uh, west of where I live, uh, called Amherst County. And it is named after none other than British General Jeffrey Amherst. And, Je and uh, Je General Jeffrey Amherst... Uh, did um, achieve um, a lot of good significant things but is it fair to say that maybe he didn't um, do a good job of valuing the Indian people especially in the aftermath of winning this war absolutely well what proclamation in 1763 did Parliament enact does anybody want to know take a guess how about the Royal Proclamation of 1763? It held that all, it basically stated that all Indian tribes were under King George III's protection. Okay, that, that's good. But it also restricted the number of settlers entering west of the Appalachians. Now, is that a bad thing for um, people living on the East Coast? especially living along um, areas that um, are just before or right around the fall lines, most notably in Virginia? Yes. It turns out that many of those people had been promised, even in the early years of this conflict, French and Indian War, that they would, when war ended, that they would be allowed to go westward. Well, a lot of those people got screwed, unfortunately, to say the least. That would just be the beginning of, a, of what would eventually become... Um, part of the greater struggle that would lead to, in the end towards separation from England, but that's a whole other subject for another time. However, comes 1764, one year after Parliament passes the Proclamation Act of 1763, William Johnson, the British Superintendent of Indian Affairs, conducts a treaty at Fort Niagara with Indians from the Upper Ohio Valley Okay, this is a sign of progress right here, folks. Do you think Jeffrey Amherst would have been interested in doing this? Probably not. But thank heavens there's someone else high up in the British military hierarchy that um, values the Indians and realizes that, hey, if we don't change our current way of thinking, who's to say that we're going to have any permanent alliances with these guys now that we have become the victorious party from this, from the uh, French and Indian War. Does anybody know where Fort Niagara is? Well, do we all know about Niagara Falls, New York? Sure, I know about it because my wife and I vacationed there three years ago, back in April of uh, 2018, 
and just north of, of the falls, oh, probably about maybe 10 miles, 10, 15 miles north of the falls, not far a drive, is Fort Niagara in what is uh, located in um, Youngstown and uh, Lewiston, I believe uh, Lewiston. Uh, we spent a day, uh, part of a day at Fort Niagara, and that is a, a very, very well worth um, historic uh, military fort to visit. So uh, William Johnson, uh, being the British superintendent of Indian affairs, will go about conducting a treaty at Fort Niagara with Indians from the upper Ohio Valley. However, it would be easy to think that this treaty uh, sailed, but it wasn't uh, ratified until two years later in 1766, the same year that Parliament uh, repealed that infamous Stamp Act, a.k.a. taxation without representation. 1766, uh, Pontiac, who was the Ottawa chief, officially accepted the treaty. So, the lesson here, folks, is that England, or rather I should say Britain, learned not to burn bridges with Indians, especially if it meant keeping the peace along the frontier. Well, you know, we all know even in today's time that we should make sure we do everything in our power not to burn bridges. But in a global conflict like this one, which was the equivalent of a world, of a world war for its time, Britain coming away with all of France's territory, yeah, it's nice to add to your empire, but if you've got other peoples living along the uh, territories that you have now acquired, you better find ways to respect them. Because if you don't, you're just, not only are you asking for trouble, but you could be asking for other conflicts down the road that um, would lead to um, bitter hostilities, an inability to have effective uh, trading alliances, so it's like that old saying, be careful what you wish for. Did British fur traders employ French men whom had knowledge of land, of land and Indian peoples? The answer is yes, folks, they did. Now, isn't, the, isn't it fair to say here that there could be some um, what you call bipartisanship here? I mean, of course, we think of bipartisanship, I think of... Uh, you know, political parties coming together, but these are two nations that for a long time at times have hated each other's guts, but it is a good step in the right direction, though, that British fur traders decide to acknowledge uh, French um, fur traders who had been there before. After all, if the, if the British are going to um, run the show here, they do need to have some um, consultation from the previous um, country that um, that had uh, maintained settlements and uh, land possession land territorial possessions for for a lengthy period of time so Charles Langlade uh, whom I mentioned earlier whom had um, helped uh, lead uh, the Ottawa and the Menominee tribes in driving out the British back in 1752 out of the Ohio Valley Charles Langlade would be the first European-American settler that um, lived at Green Bay, and he went about trading with the Indians. One thing, uh, another thing that this uh, Proclamation Treaty of 1763, or rather Proclamation Act, um, emphasized, and it's, it's very important, is that an individual or a group of individuals had to get permission from the crown to conduct business and lands west of the Mississippi River. So I just couldn't wake up tomorrow and say, hey, I'm not far from that line. I'm just going to walk into that um, area and just start trading with any Indian tribe I want. No, you would have had to have gotten permission from the Crown. That doesn't mean I would have to, you know, England's 3,000 miles away, so that's going to take me, what, about six to seven weeks just to cross the seas to get over to Parliament just to get permission from the crown being the king. But no, uh, King George III, he's got, you know, obviously agents along this frontier whom you can go to to get permission. 
of course, they would probably review whatever records you had on file, or they would just, you know, review some form of credential and say, hey, is John Smith a worthy person whom should be on our territory trading? Despite the British uh, control over all lands west of the Appalachians, were French-speaking people from the Illinois country the first to establish dwellings at Prairie du Chen come the start of the early 1770s? Yes. They were uh, French-speaking people whom had their own method of land division, and I think this is very interesting and worth pointing out. We'll talk about it here in a moment, but there... Um, the um, areas where these French-speaking peoples had um, established a successful land division uh, property settlements were most notably at Cahokia, Kaskaskia, and Prairie du Rocher, where people owned a village to farming a lot, which is exactly what happens at Prairie du Chen. Okay, you own a village and you farm a lot. By 1800, Prairie du Chen is home to three villages. And who's president of the United States in 1800, folks? Is it George Washington or John Adams? The answer is John Adams. George Washington's presidency ended three years earlier in 1797, and sadly he died in 1799. So here's a little breakdown of... Uh, Prairie du Chen and being home to three villages. The main village was on an island facing the east channel of the Mississippi River. The island was separated from the mainland by a marsh. Two villages, or two other villages, were on the mainland. One village laid directly across the marsh from the main village, whereas the smaller village was located three miles away to the north. All village lots were located along the um, Mississippi River's waters. The best way I can sum all this up, folks, is that these villages, they were not all obviously compacted together as one large you know, community or neighborhood, but the villages all um, worked together in a sense to where they uh, benefited from one another's uh, presence uh, especially with goods that could be um, sent north and south, and vice versa. So they, they weren't all compacted together, but they were close enough to where they could all benefit one another, from one another being not far from a, from a key body of water, uh, being the Mississippi River. Now, was the uh, trading community at Prairie du Chen more sophisticated versus at Labaye? Uh, the answer is yes. I found this to be interesting when I read this book years ago, uh, not years ago, last year rather, I should say, but uh, rereading what was uh, what I felt was necessary in, uh, sh in sharing with you all regarding this podcast is that, um, for starters, the traders at Prairie du Chen lived in the uh, main village where their stores and homes were located. Secondly, men whom lived in uh, the two villages on the mainland were voyagers with trade experience, and thirdly, the village families were all close to one another, which included assisting each other with growing and harvesting crops on all farm lots. So, is it fair to say that um, at Prairie du Chen, it is an us-we-ourselves um, uh, philosophy? Now, I'm not saying that Labaye was bad, but it is fair to say that at Prairie du Chen, there is a um, greater cohesive unit of a broad family, um, or rather a broad community network of uh, peoples, or of people living together nearby and helping one, one another out. I would say so. A handful of British Canadians from Lower Canada would go about learning from the French on how to engage in trade practices with Indian tribes. So when I talk about a handful of British Canadians, I'm talking about men who would become uh, fur traders themselves. Or not just fur traders, but traders in general. You know, you do have to learn from someone. I mean, think about it. These British Canadians, we might as well, 
it's fair to say that they could have been a, could have been um, undergoing apprenticeships of their own. By 1800, where did the British fur trade stand around Prairie du Chien? Was it um, extremely strong? Was it average or was it weak? It was extremely strong, considering that many traders either resided at Prairie du Chien, that is, they made that their permanent home, or used the community as a headquarter um, place for when they would um, come for, you know, temporary or uh, short-term uh, stays. So the bottom line is Prairie du Chien is a vital halfway point for north and southbound uh, trading purposes. The majority of the uh, Prairie du Chen traders, I thought this was interesting to, to note, they had strong ties amongst the Dakota Indian nation. How so? Well, it turns out that many of these uh, traders from Prairie du Chen would go about um, marrying Dakota women and went about forming uh, strong unions or marriages Hey, if you're going to get to know the people and you really value them for who they are and they value you in return, maybe it's not a bad idea to form some marriage alliances and this way it would prevent, um, prevent any unnecessary hostilities from taking place. Were all residents from, uh, Western, from the Western Great Lakes to the Upper Mississippi region connected in some way or form to the fur trade? Absolutely yes, folks. The Euro Amer the European American traders um, to farmers uh, went about producing crops that um, Indians needed, but the Indians were the ones that were um, trapping the animals, most notably the beavers, to where they were processing hides and pelts, so that this way the European American traders could fashion the um, fashion what the um, Indians had done in terms of processing the hides and the pelts into uh, something fashionable like a uh, nice fancy um, hat or for a woman for a fancy what we might think of as a fancy purse by today's uh, standards. So both sides have to uh, benefit significantly. I think it's probably fair to say that the French were probably more successful in establishing good relations with the Indians and yes, the British finally learned before it was too late in establishing good relations with the Indians along further inland than perhaps what the British were able to do along the eastern, uh, along the eastern, uh, the east coast of the United States when the first, especially when the first uh, settlements were taking place, uh, like most notably at uh, what we now know as present-day Jamestown, Virginia. Although the British emerged victorious in the aftermath of the French and Indian War, they as a nation had to be reminded going forward that fur trade policies, or rather practices, were required to stay intact. And why so, folks? Because if they didn't stay intact, then how can you expect economic, cultural, and family ties along the Indian frontiers to survive not just short-term, but long-term. Indians, yes, have always been probably very leery of Europeans, even at this time, but at the same time, the Indians along this uh, stretch of territory in the United States are coming to value the Europeans, most notably the French, well, the French and the British, but more so the British now, because the British have control of this territory, but they are coming to realize that, hey, the British are their saviors, at least for now. I mean, we're not even anywhere close to a war for independence, but but it is fair to say, folks, that, uh, that the Indians do see the British as their savior. That is, that is, that the British aren't trying to take advantage of them, cheat them out of their lands. I mean, it, it, it's very clear that the Royal Proclamation of 1763 pretty much uh, stated that all Indians were under King George III's protection. But of course, you know, laws themselves get um, changed from time to time, and sometimes they don't always change for the right reasons, and history has uh, shown that. 
So to wrap up this podcast, here's a um, final question for you all. Did the United States government face hurdles over how to administer territory west of the Appalachian Mountains, a.k.a. Northwest Territory? Okay, when I said the new United States government, folks, <laughs> now we're moving forward. We Is it say, is safe to say that when I said the new, new United States government, does that mean that the U.S., that the new United States government, or rather the United States Continental Army, defeated the mightiest empire in the world, meaning um, the, the British? Yes. So now that the British have been defeated, and here we are transitioning out of the post-revolutionary war era, we have a constitution now as our new legal binding, gover legal binding governing document that, is, that has totally replaced the Articles of Confederation. So we have uh, some major hurdles on our plate now as to how we're going to um, administer the Northwest Territory. What we now know is present-day Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, where Prairie du Chen is. Of course, we don't know about Prairie du Chen just yet as a new government. However, um, what we're struggling in, folks, is that, you, that our new government has no way of knowing just how many Indian tribes were already established uh, west of the Appalachians. We don't know what kind of alliances they have. We don't even know for sure how many of these Indian tribes are still loyal to the crown and don't want to change their alliances. How about administering policies that would ensure settlers' safety and rights to land settlement? Yes, we could promise settlers who want to go westward that, hey, you'll be entitled to a couple of hundred acres of land, or maybe starting out 50 at best. But when the settlers get to, say, present-day Ohio, do you think they're going to be welcomed by the Indians? Heck no. They're going to see that the Indians are going to see these um, settlers as red flags. They're going to see them as people who are um, not native enemies. And who can the Indians turn to for help? The British. Because even we don't have a plan in place to, to tell the British, hey, look, you all can't be here anymore. Do you think the British want to relinquish their power? Heck no. So, yes, we have defeated the mightiest empire in the world, but it doesn't mean that they have left. It doesn't mean that, we, that, that a farewell party has taken place saying, ha-ha, hey, hey, goodbye, you're gone. No. We still have some uphill battles as a nation as to how we're going to uh, administer this new Northwest uh, Territory. Well, we've covered a lot of ground um, for this uh, episode, and thank you again, as always, for uh, listening. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be discussing about British trade in the United States Territory from 1783 to 1802. So that means that um, we could be learning about some other things in the post-revolutionary war era that were not discussed at all from uh, this episode, and that's fine. But we're also going to be learning, we could be learning about stuff, um, or rather information that um, carries over into um, the time when the United States government is established. So we have a lot more to learn about with this um, forgotten um piece of uh, history, but then again, telling the story is what matters more than anything else, so this way all of you will come away knowing that uh, you have learned something new about America's forgotten war that you didn't know before. Thank you again for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon with all of you, my faithful 101 podcast listeners. Take care and stay safe.